Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast from 2019, Indra Viscontis, neuroscientist and operatic soprano, discusses the relationship between music and the brain. From June 12th to June 18th, 2022, explore the intersection between arts and health through a series of events across LA County. For more information and a full schedule, please visit laopera.org wellness. I thought I would start by asking the question that you have asked uh, in your book, what is music? <laughs> oh, right. Getting, starting off easy, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Well, I'm going to answer that question by not really answering it, just because we can't actually point to any feature of a sound wave that makes it music. So we can't say A flat, that's music. We can't say okay, it's the way the music, the notes are kind of put together. I mean, maybe that's music for some persons, or but not for others. We can't really say it's the silence between the notes. So ultimately, music is what your brain does to a sound wave to give you the illusion that it is musical. And so that's basically a kind of really kind of runaround answer to say that music is something that your brain does. It happens in your brain. It depends on how you've kind of decided to categorize sound. If birdsong, as you walk through a nature hike, sounds musical to you, then that's music. If it doesn't, if heavy metal does not sound musical to you, but just sounds like awful noise, then it's not music. But the point is, is that music is very subjective. It requires a brain. And so there's a correct answer to the question of, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? The answer is no. And it certainly doesn't make music unless there is a brain there to turn the sound wave into some kind of electrical signal that then we interpret as music. Okay, so we're not two minutes in and already you're uh, blowing my mind. So it's absolutely different for every single person. There's no objective thing that is music or is not music. Well, I mean, we can decide what it is that we want to say music is, right? There will not be a definition that will satisfy every single person. So it's like saying, what is color? Right. I mean, Mm. we all kind of know what it is. We can kind of agree, (laughs) but it's really hard to pin down because part of the aspect of color that makes color color is your subjective experience of it. And if you're colorblind, that's going to be different. You know, if you are an artist that works in the visual medium, that's going to be different. Music is is one of these things that requires subjective experience in order for it to be have all the magic. But sure, we can talk about organized sound, we can talk about melody, we can talk about harmony, we can talk about aspects of music. But I think if you're really trying to define music, that's one of the points that I try to make in my book is that, you know, we get so caught up in trying to figure out what's right or what's good. And we forget Mm. the fact that music is really an experience. And so experiences are not always good or bad or one or the other. They're usually a mixture of all of those kinds of different things. What they are is ours. And and that's, I think, what I want people to get from the book is that you you need to take back music. (laughs) And if it's music to you, then, you know, that's worth something. And with color, so obviously somewhere along the lines, like we sort of agreed as a society that like, well, this thing is orange for most people. So we're going to call it orange, mm-hmm. right? Is right. is that sort of what we've done with like Beethoven, for example? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think ex- exactly. So I think people who are trying to sort of figure out, how, you know, how to talk to someone about music, you you play them a melody, and they're going to all agree that's music. You tell them a sentence, and they're going to say that's not music, that's speech, right? Mm. But then in comes Diana Deutsch, who's a, a cognitive scientist, a music cognition pioneer, and she was working on creating some sound files in the studio one day, and um, all of a sudden she thought that she heard herself singing. And she realized Mm. that one of her sentences that she was editing had just been put on a loop and it was just repeating it over and over and over again. What happens in this illusion is that you hear the sentence the first time out. Well, let's just listen to it. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible you'll see that the next thing that happens is that there is a bunch of repetitions that come in. But they sometimes behave so strangely. They sometimes behave so strangely. 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 So strangely. So strangely. So strangely. So strangely. By the time you finish listening to that sound file, it sounds like for most people, she bursts into song halfway through. So let's listen to the whole sentence again from the beginning. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. Now, all of a sudden, it sounds like she's singing the second half because that's the part that's been repeated. But the sound wave hasn't changed, right? What's changed is the way that your brain interprets the sound wave. And I like to say, if the solution doesn't work for you, it's probably because you were paying too much attention. (laughs) You know, (laughs) most of us get a little bored after it's been repeated three or four times. And so we kind of tune out. Maybe we start trying to find other aspects of the sound to listen to, like the rhythm or the the, the sort of melody, the cadence. Uh, And so we turn it into music in our brains. And so the same stimulus, that one sentence, can be sound or just speech in one context and, and music just by virtue of repetition. Interesting. And so, like, I'm not perceiving a moment where it crosses over from the brain telling me that this is speech versus the brain telling me that this is music. Is that, like, that's meant to be, you know, sort of, we just cross over into that space and how did we get here? Well, Brian, I'm here to tell you that the vast majority of what your brain does is not available to you consciously. True, yes. <laughs> so your brain is making all kinds of decisions that you are not privy to, um, including whether it's going to categorize sound as music or not. That is not a conscious decision for the most part. Mm. Um, just like, you know, if you think about what the sound wave actually is it's it's just you know these these changes in the air pressure that hit your ear and and they they go through this whole mechanical process to be turned into an electrical signal but it's a pretty impoverished signal right just like um vision like the, our, our visual system gets a pretty impoverished view of the world like if you if you took your thumb and you put it at arm's length in front of you your thumbnail is about 
the size of your fovea, about how clear the center of your field of view is. The rest of your entire field of view is blurry. You're legally blind <laughs> in most of it. And we don't experience the world that way, right? We experience the world as being clear anywhere we look. And that's because we're moving our eyes all the time. So, you know, your brain is kind of filling in all of these gaps in our senses um, without our knowledge. And, and so over the course of, of a lot of experience with sound, uh, your brain will decide uh, before you are able to make that decision consciously whether it's going to interpret that sound as music or not. And that's why the repetition works for a lot of people. Because once again, the brain sort of interprets that signal as being something kind of qualitatively different. And so it engages different regions of the brain, different networks. It's a way of essentially changing the way the brain processes that same information. Hmm. So my next question then is, what's the point of music? That's another good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite description of this comes from the work of Annie Patel, uh, which, you know, there is this debate in science about whether language predates music in terms of our evolutionary history or the other way around. And people say, well, you know, there are parts of your brain that evolved in order to process speech and, and, and language sounds. Uh, and those get co-opted when it comes to music, that music is auditory cheesecake, right? So we didn't evolve in order to eat cheesecake. But cheesecake has sugars and fats and things that we did evolve to crave. And so it just kind of hits all these sweet spots. Or the other idea is sort of more Jared Diamond view, which is music is fundamental to civilization. You know, the way that we are able to control our voice box, the way that our language production areas of our brain controlled all this musculature in our mouths and in our face, et cetera, that all it's primal to who we are as human beings. But I actually liked Ani's view, which is that music is a tool, just like fire. So one of the reasons that we are able to do all the things that we do is because we don't need to spend the majority of our time searching for food because we can cook it. <laughs> you know, we have these big brains that require a lot of fuel. We need to eat a lot of calories. That's why gorillas have actually pretty small brains because they haven't figured out how to cook. And so they have to eat, you know, raw food and, and it takes a lot of calories to, to fuel those brains. So we were able, we figured out how to cook and that allowed us to have all this free time to develop societies and, and all the other stuff that comes with being a human being. In a way, music is a similar tool. It allows us to communicate emotions. It allows us to communicate things that language falls short. It's certainly not as specific as language. So one of the examples I give in my book is that if I asked you to bring home a carton of milk, um, I can play the violin as long <laughs> as I want, and you're still not going to come home <laughs> with that carton of milk. But, you know, a simple sentence and, or a text message, uh, and there you go. But there are things that I can say with music, and you mentioned Beethoven, that I can't say in any other way, and that you can understand almost in ways that, that, that you can't use language to describe. Uh, so I, I would say that that music is about communicating some of these innermost uh, parts of the human experience that just are not communicable using sound or to people who can't process sound. So, for example, for babies, you know, babies can understand music. Uh, they can understand emotions in music uh, far sooner than they can understand emotions and hmm. words. How do you account for cultural differences? For example, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony means a lot to certain people from certain cultures, but it may not have the same impact in different parts of the world. So the idea of music being kind of a universal language, I personally find that a little bit problematic because like it's to me, it's not right. Like you have to have a certain mm -hmm 
fundamental knowledge of something in order for Beethoven's Ninth to speak to you in a certain way, right? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that that is something that is made very clear by people like the composer Robert Greenberg, who also has this fabulous career as a professor for the great courses. You know, he does all of these music interpretation and appreciation courses. And, you know, his his fundamental point is that you need to understand the context in which the music was written in order to fully understand the music. And so if you understand what Beethoven was trying to say because you understand his cultural context, then you can get a lot more meaning out of his music than if you don't have any reference point uh, you know, for his culture or, or for the history or the time and place in which he was living. So that is a key feature of music as we understand it. Now, simpler forms of music, you know, if it's just a matter of um, you know, a folk song, we might have a better idea of what it means mm. cross-culturally, um, especially if it's a pretty universal Like an acapella lullaby or like something? Mm, yeah, yeah, or sure. a work song. Sure. You know, it's a good example, right? Like we probably recognize a sea shanty versus, you know, some Thing that people were singing and and when they're you know picking cotton right we can we can tell that this mean what what this means but unless we understand the plight of those individuals like what are um, the struggles of the person who is picking cotton versus the person who is fishing uh, we might not understand all the different sort of features of the music that that are really key to a deep understanding of it right so I agree with you I don't think music is a universal language in terms of every piece of music being universal. I think music as a construct is a universal language in the sense that we don't know of any tribes or cultures that don't mm-hmm. somehow share music <laughs> in some way. Uh, but the actual pieces uh, that, that are shared, I think, are not mm. necessarily universal. Do you think we have too much music in our lives, in our 21st century culture today? I don't. I don't think we have enough music in our lives, but I think that we have too much background music <laughs> often uh, in the sense that we then feel like we've done, like, you know, if, if you listen to music kind of on your commute or when you're shopping or, or what have you, you don't think of yourself as having a fast of music, you know, music fast, where you think of yourself, well, and sure, I listen to music, but you might not be getting everything that you can out of the music. And I think what we're seeing now is a trend towards people listening more as opposed to actually participating in the music making. And to me, I think that's really sad because music for a long time was something that everybody did in addition to consuming. And if we lose that, I think we lose a lot of the power of music to you know, empower us to make our lives better, to communicate with each other. And so you know, I actually think that there isn't enough participatory music making going on, and there probably is enough kind mm. of background listening, but not enough active listening. So you know, another example is that, you know, people who go to hear live music report these amazing beneficial effects that go beyond all kinds of things. Like, you know, in some cases, they, it becomes more impactful and meaningful than yoga class or, or a meditation retreat. Um, and yet most people see going to performances and concerts in a very different light. They don't see them as part of their own wellness right? They see it as maybe, well, that's something that I should do. I should be cultured, but they don't see it as like, it's actually, it could, it could mm. make me a healthier person just by going mm. to hear live music. And, and I think that that's, that's probably too bad. That seems like a study for a good marketing department of a major performing arts organization, right? Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, but, you know, interestingly, you know, one of the main answers that come back to 
major arts organizations when they do audience research is, you know, oh, yeah, I would go to more concerts if I knew more about the music. What's your response to that? Like, how much do you need to know about, and I guess I'm speaking from a classical music slash opera mm-hmm. context for this, the purposes of this question. Like, how much do people need to know in order to, you know, make the financial commitment and time commitment to, to go to a concert? Well, I think that very much depends on the piece. Like if you've never been to the opera before, I usually recommend an opera like La Boheme, you know, or Carmen, which is fast paced. The story is great. The music, you know, you've probably heard some of it before, especially Carmen. You've definitely heard (laughs) tunes. So, you know, in the middle of it, you can be like, oh, I recognize that tune. And you don't need to know that much. You know, maybe you need to know enough about whether or not there will be super titles, (laughs) right? Because if you're, if there aren't going to be super titles and it's sung in the original languages, then you probably want to read the synopsis so you know what's going on. But I don't think you need a ton of prep work in order to enjoy those kinds of musical experiences. Um, You know, if it was Piero Lunaire (laughs) or if it was, you know, something that's a little bit more challenging for a first listen or other operas, you know, then I think you do need to in order to really appreciate what you you should be listening for, you do need to do at least a little bit of background. You know, I think sometimes the pre-performance talks are enough. Uh, Sometimes you actually need to listen to the music a number of times before you can start to figure out where the patterns are. So let me back up there for a second and talk a little bit about how your brain processes music, which is, you know, but it's searching for, for patterns. We love to find patterns in anything. You know, we like to find the Virgin Mary in our toast, right? (laughs) Things that are meaningful to us, we see in ambiguous stimuli all the time. And, and music is no different, you know, in order to understand uh, Chopin, for example, you want to have some idea of the harmonic structure and, and sort of where those notes want to go and, and what is being said in that way. Just to interrupt Uh, though, in order to understand Chopin, do I need to understand Chopin? That's it, It's a good point, right? So yeah, I don't know that you need to understand it to enjoy it. But I think if you don't listen actively, and you just kind of let it wash over you, you're not going to have the same experience. Like um, there's a great TED talk by Benjamin Zander, where he, he d- describes this, and he basically uses one piece of simple piano piece to explain, you know, that, that this, this little tiny simple piece is really all about uh, a universal struggle that we have as humans, which which is to go home Mm. (laughs) after we've done all this wandering. But, you know, he demonstrates how, you know, that, and you don't have to know music theory in order to get it, but you have to know what you're listening for. Right. So I think that that is more important than knowing necessarily all of the details of the music. So in order to know what to listen for, though, you either need somebody to tell you, okay, you need to wait for this melody and then listen to what what's happening to it. Um, or you need to be familiar with the type of music. So that just like in the, in the example at the top of the show where we, where we have like a repeated phrase, you know, your brain starts to extract the regularities, extracts the patterns. Um, and so if you know, like sort of even how big the patterns are, like if you if you think about the simple sonata form, you know, A, B, A prime. Right. So you you when you come back to the theme, you know, you're listening for the variation that already helps you kind of get get a, a, a better appreciation of the piece and enjoy it more because your brain part of the joy of listening to music is finding these little Easter eggs. Right. Finding these patterns and 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 sort of understanding what they might mean. 
Um, it might n- doesn't necessarily mean that you need to understand it at the level of, you know, the the musicology professor <laughs> at, you know, USC. But I do think that that helps you see see the patterns. And so, yeah, listening beforehand also, you know, familiarity breeds preference, right? So the more times you hear something, the more you like it. And so if you've just listened to something for the first time and it doesn't have a lot of repetition, I will say also repetition is the one universal feature that we see in all music, except 21st century or 20th century composed music, or art music or new music, whatever you want to call it, where it's explicitly avoided. And that's one of the reasons why people find it hard to listen to, um, because repetition is, is what essentially tells us where the patterns are. And we enjoy it more the second time we listen to mm. something. So that's that's what I would say is is the prep work involved. Yeah. And I wonder if that maybe sort of helps to explain the the really um incredible popularity of the music of like Philip Glass and, and Steve Reich and the other they don't like to be called minimalists but you know that's the word that we have for it is there is that repetition mm-hmm. and then slight modifications to that repetition and you know I wonder you know, it, it feels like a lot of younger fans of classical music, art music, whatever you want to call it, seem to gravitate towards that aesthetic when they're talking about 20th and 21st century music. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. You know, um, one of my colleagues, Elizabeth Helmuth Margulis, she did this great study where she took the uh, compositions of Luciano Berrio and Elliot Carter, and she artificially inserted extra rep- repetitions. Mm. And then she um, asked people three questions. One, how interesting they thought the music was two, whether or not they enjoyed it, and three, whether or not it was composed by a human or a computer. And it turns out that the repetition hacked excerpts, you know, were considered more interesting, more enjoyable, and more likely to be human <laughs> than the originals um, in the, in her study. And, and so I think that even, even in, in cases where we sort of have this this lofty idea of well this music is great you know because it doesn't have this repetition um, you know you can make it more accessible now that being said you know you don't there is this kind of U shaped curve or inverted U shaped curve in terms of our the complexity of music and how much we enjoy it like if it's too simple the wheels on the bus go round and <laughs> round right that's going to get really annoying fast and um, it's not going to be at all pleasant uh, but my five year old loves it you know and he'll sing all twenty <laughs> verses. Or if it's too complicated. So for some people, Luciano Berrio, Elliot Carter, it's too complicated. They don't know what to listen for. And so it makes them feel stupid. It makes them feel like they're not getting it. And, you know, they, they can find themselves getting bored. You know, I think that that's, those are the situations in which a little bit of knowledge can, can help reduce some of that complexity. But, you know, for most of us, we have mm. this sweet spot. And the more time we spend in a particular genre the more that sweet spot can be pushed out on the complexity curve, right? So if I've never listened to free jazz before, it might be too complicated right off the bat. But the more I listen to it, the more I'm able to tolerate uh, the bending of the rules and and all these different choices yeah. that artists make. By the way, I, I love the way that you're talking about this. Um, as someone who uh, basically my career is connecting people to music, I get so frustrated and not to go negative all of a sudden, but, you know, I get so frustrated with the people that tell you, oh, you have to appreciate this in a certain way. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you and your understanding of music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just I I don't like that mindset, but it feels like that mindset is so pervasive in classical music. And I wonder, I imagine it's not exclusive to just classical music, but you know, just sort of the the welcoming way that you're speaking about complex music, classical music, it's so wonderful and refreshing. 
Oh, well, thank you. You know, I mean, I get this comment all the time. People say, oh, you know, I really love Adele or, you know, I really love um, Sarah Brightman. But, you know, is she a good singer? And I would just be like, but you love her. So yes, of course she is. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, it, you know, it, it doesn't, why would my opinion be more important than yours just because I went to school for, you know, singing it, it, uh, that to me is what was really kind of sad because it made people question their own tastes. You know, the, the other side of it, of course, is where people say, look, you know, I like all kinds of music, but I just don't like opera. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to me, my answer is, well, you probably just haven't spent a lot of time listening to it. And uh, let me find you some operas that I think you might like. And if you don't, that's fine, too. But, you know, I think I think that there is this push and pull, right? Like in order to decide whether or not a particular genre or a particular artist is a great artist, I think you do need to have some familiarity with that type of music before you can make that kind of a judgment. But whether or not you like it, I think that's you know entirely personal because the person who doesn't understand or, or thinks that unless you, you know, are, are Va- Wagner you know, aficionado, unless you love Wagner, you're really not cultured, is going to could be the same person who really doesn't understand hip hop and thinks that hip hop is not music at all and is completely missing out on some of the genius of hip hop, like just the the twists and turns and the and the clever wordplay and, you know, the the different uses of, of rhythms that, you know, in some ways it's much harder <laughs> uh, to write a really great hip hop album these days uh, than it is to write another opera. Uh, and, you know, it depends on what you consider difficult. But, um, you know, there are a lot of people writing hip hop albums a lot more than are writing operas and a lot fewer of those are getting any kind of play. Yeah. Not that it's easy to be an opera composer. <laughs> right. Those are also probably the same people that freaked out when Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer too. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, you know, there is a reason. There are um, aspects of all kinds of genres and arts that we don't necessarily get if we are not immersed in that genre. But I think this idea that, you know, if it, there there is an elitism and classical music suffers from the elitist view uh, and it's not doing it any favors. So, you know, if we want classical music to continue to, to thrive, uh, we need to show people that it's not something to be feared. It doesn't you don't have to feel stupid if you go to the symphony <laughs> because you don't understand every nuance and you can't talk about, you know, all the other you know, performances of that particular piece. But at the same time, you know, we, we also have to recognize that these kinds of musical experiences are going to be pretty foreign to people. And so we do need to give them a little bit of background uh, in order to help them figure out what it is that they should be listening yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, approachability and accessibility have kind of been, you know, dirty words for a lot of folks in classical insiders and you know, I don't know why. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes the mistake people think is that they have to dumb down the art as opposed to make the audience smarter. <laughs> Right. I think sometimes they think, well, you know, we can't produce these, you know, really difficult pieces because the audience just won't get it, as opposed to thinking about it as, you know, let's bring the audience in. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I, I know that there are a lot of marketing people and, you know, executives in these uh, large organizations that are have thought about this way more than I have or, or, you know, way smarter than me about this. But I think that that sometimes when we think that we need to actually simplify the art we lose uh, because then not only is it not great art, <laughs> um, but it's also not going to move move people. I think that you know we, it is surprising at how people who have no in, no experience and no background 
in classical music or in opera or in new music or what have you, you know, can very quickly be brought online um, and and sort of you know be able to enjoy the these these works in the same way that a person who has enjoyed it all their lives can with the right context and the right background mm-hmm. setting. When did you first discover music? I don't remember when I didn't have music in my life. Um, I My mom was a choral conductor. And so from the time I was like two years old, uh, she would just put me underneath the piano. Uh, we had a grand piano, uh, so there's plenty <laughs> of room down there. And uh, she, we, we, she'd be rehearsing, you know, Monday nights with her choir in our house. And uh, in, in her peak, she, uh, she had four nights a week where she was rehearsing with various different choirs. But by the time I turned five, you know, it was time for me to start singing in my own choirs. Um, it was time for me to start learning to play the piano. So it was just a part of my growing up. And I just assumed that that was the case with everybody, you know, just like everybody or most people, you know, learn to speak. Uh, so, you know, unless you have a, a language disability or, or a disorder, that just happens naturally in our family. Music mm. was the same. What about your interest in how the brain works? So that started to happen in my high school time. Um, in high school, I sort of had two interests, uh, the sciences and English. Those were my two favorite classes. Um, Music was everything I did outside of actual school. (laughs) But in school, Mm. I loved my English class and I loved um, my science classes, especially biology. And then I discovered the writings of Oliver Sacks, who's a great neurologist and author. And the way that he kind of brought these two worlds together was really influential for me. Uh, He essentially took neurological case studies told the stories of the patients. And in that way, it helped us uh, understand the brain better. And so that I, I thought that was the most fascinating thing that you could study. And I also started to come of age uh, as an undergraduate and then graduate student in what was called the decade of the brain. So it was going to be when we sure. make all these great, you know, uh, discoveries about the brain. Well, you know, here we are a couple decades la- later and we're still making all of those discoveries. But um, I think it's going to be the century of the brain. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's, that's sort of how uh, neuroscience and psychology came into my life. And I know you've been asked this probably dozens of times, but, you know, was there ever a moment where you were sort of at a at a crossroads of like, okay, I've got to pick one. And then, oh, wait, no, I I don't have to pick one. (laughs) Brian, every year, (laughs) (laughs) every single year. Uh, And then, you know, less and less so now as I've managed to weave the two uh, passions into a career. But yes, I mean, many, many, many times. And, And I would say in my earlier um, sort of education, so between undergrad and um, when I finished my master's in music. So I actually got a PhD in neuroscience in between my undergraduate degree and my music master's degree. Um, so a little bit out of order. But uh, at every every sort of pivot point, so after I did my undergraduate degree in psychology, and then I decided, no, I really want to be a singer full time. So I moved to London and worked as an usher at the Royal Opera House, seeing opera six nights a week. Mm. <laughs> and then I realized, wow, like it's really hard to make a living as a singer. <laughs> so I should probably do something that can help me continue to train my voice uh, but, you know, also provide an income. And I, I happened to have gotten a scholarship to do a PhD at UCLA. So then I went to UCLA and for five years worked on my PhD while still developing my voice and doing summer music programs. And then once I finished the PhD, I felt like, oh, now I really need to immerse myself 100% in music. So that's when I went and did the Master's of Music. And then when I finished the Master's of Music, I really thought, hey, you know what, in this musical world, 
there is a lot of information about neuroscience that's missing. And if I could bring some of that information into the musical world, we would all benefit. And so that's what I've been doing since. Hmm, amazing. When you finally graduated for the last time um, <laughs> and then weren't going to school anymore, what did that feel like? Um, it felt very strange. <laughs> it's been a long time. It took me a few years to figure out, you know, to sort of find myself in that way. But those years actually were really important because I, I decided at that time that I wasn't going to do anything that wasn't somehow related to being a performer. And so I learned what it was like to be a freelancer. I learned what it was like to manage your own, you know, career and not have a salary, but, you know, set money aside for the uh, famine days. <laughs> and uh, and I learned how so many different things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis can have a cross-influence both as performers and, and as thinkers. There were some years where if, if my mother thought I was floundering and uh, definitely was worried about me, uh, but eventually things kind of started to, to come together. Mm -hmm. And was it in those years that uh, Pasadena Opera came into being? Yes, that was around the time that my friend Dana Sadova and I decided to start this company. Uh, we were both trying to figure out how we wanted our musical careers to unfold. And she is a really talented and, and skilled conductor. And so she 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 wanted to have a partner in, in putting together this opera company. And, and so that's what we did. And and so we started Pasadena Opera about five years ago. Um, we started it in Pasadena because both of us have connections to L.A. She actually grew up in Pasadena and then went to Caltech. And, you know, I did my Ph.D. and lived in L.A. for many years. And we thought that the community would be very open to uh, an opera company that would use kind of contemporary looks or, or ideas to present really great works of, of opera. So we tend to focus on music that's been composed in the last hundred years, although we did do a version of Cozy, um, but it was set in 1967. Mm -hmm. We found that, you know, the audience in Pasadena, these are art lovers. These are people who really want to forge community that's important to them. Um, but they are also the place where Caltech is and where there's lots of innovation. Uh, and so we were really excited to start a company that we thought was a slightly different model um, than a usual opera company mm -hmm. and that it would find a, a willing audience there. And how's it going? Uh, it's going really well. <laughs> <laughs> we produce about one production a year. And the reason that we haven't done more uh, is because we really have wanted to be very mindful and to produce productions that we feel are as high a quality as we can possibly uh, afford, both in terms of time and money. Opera is expensive to produce. Yeah. <laughs> Our first three productions essentially sold out A Noise Within, uh, mm -hmm. which is a, a really lovely theater. And then the last production that we did, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, I directed it, and it's based on an Oliver Sacks case study. And we set it in Caltech because it's essentially, it starts out as him giving an academic talk mm. about the case. And so we wanted people to feel as if they are there listening to him talk as the story unfolds. That was a, a sort of departure by, by leaving a traditional theater and going into this new space. And, and our audience seemed to really enjoy it. Their biggest complaint was that we didn't have more performances. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was partly because it was hard to you know, secure space at Caltech sure. for this kind of a project. So one of the things that we do at Pasadena Opera is we choose operas that have themes that we feel are very relevant for the current time. So for example, when we produced Cozy, we really talked about the feminism part of it and the way in which women are objectified in, in ways that just aren't that productive. 
We also produced Susanna, and and there we really talked about how sort of gossip, and we were referring to somewhat subtly just the effects of social media, how that can really ruin mm. a person's life. Uh, another relevant topic. You know, over the course of all of your performance experience, uh, your years of of research and and study of of the brain, you know, when people talk about the effects of music, obviously there's certainly physical effects that we can now see, right? Mm -hmm. What about sort of those non-viewable emotional effects? Can that be something that you actually can see? Is that something that you can sort of quantify and look at? Yeah. So, you know, I I think that for a long time, I I didn't actually want to take the scientific view of of music because i felt like you know if you if you reduce it too much it takes the magic away <laughs> so i actually like to turn the whole question around mm. and say you know what is it that music can tell us about our brains what can it tell us about ourselves uh the way that we listen to it the way that we are you know so impassioned by it and what i've learned is that there are many different things that we can learn uh from them and and that the more specific you get the more interesting they are so for example, you know, I have a I host a podcast called Cadence, which you know is what music tells us about the mind. And in the first season, it was kind of an overview of kind of music in the brain. How do we listen to rhythm? How you know? So we talked to percussionists and we talked to people who study rhythm and the parts of the brain that are involved, etc. And then the second season, I I wanted to you know harken back towards Oliver Sacks, and I took a more case study approach. The second season was about music as medicine, and I I, I profiled eight different stories of people whose lives were you know, really changed by music um, from a person with Williams syndrome, which is this developmental disorder that some people term pathological friendliness. Uh, so people, they just, they just are super happy to see you and they give you big hugs and, and music is a big part of their lives um, versus like women who uh, are immigrants and have no money. And in Boston, there is this shelter uh, in which they use music to teach them English. So all these different ways in which music is used, I think if we, if we just had to have a blanket statement of, you know, how, you know, this is why, you know, the title of my book is How Music Can Make You Better, which, you know, to my mother's chagrin is, is a bit vague, right? There is <laughs> that she's like, better at what? And I'm like, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's what's interesting to me is that it, it in so many different ways, but each of those ways is very specific. Um, we can use music in music therapy to retrain a person's brain to help them use the right hemisphere to produce language when the left hemisphere is damaged. We can see uh, how music can rewire, uh, help a person rewire after a stroke. Uh, We can see how music can help people with Alzheimer's disease come out of their shells after they've been completely non-communicative for a long time. Um, And each of these different uses of music tells you something interesting about the brain and about us and about a relationship with music. But it also tells us that the music intervention has to be pretty specific itself. So it's not just like listening to music has all of these effects. No, in the case of the therapy for speech rehabilitation, it's a specific type of music. You know, melodic intonation therapy is one that I'm thinking Mm. of. You know, for people with Parkinson's disease, again, there are are, are specific uses of music. You can help them establish a a beat. So one of the things that's hard if you have Parkinson's disease is initiating movement. Um, But if you have music that gives you this intrinsic beat, 
it can sort of help you do that. Um, it also fills your brain full of dopamine, which is a neurochemical that uh, there is not enough of in the brains of people with Parkinson's disease. So, you know, I think that we learn all these specific and interesting and nuanced things uh, just by looking at our relationship with music. And so to me, I, I hesitate to just say, you know, it has one purpose or it has one you know, way of, of interacting with us. It's, it's like fire <laughs> it has many different uses, it's uses and, and many different ways in which it has enriched mm. our lives. Mm. And then of course the cynic in me says, okay, what's the insurance billing code for using music? And are we coming along into this understanding of music as actual, you know, treatment for patients? I mean, and that's a really good point. And that's a really good point. And music therapists are working very hard on creating those billing codes because that's yeah. their livelihood. Um, and so I think there, right now we are in a, in a time in which there is an explosion of interest of music in therapeutical yeah. settings. And we're making great strides. Uh, you know, we're seeing and, and we're, you know, we have ways of, of measuring things. You know, your, your first uh, question really was, which I really haven't <laughs> answered, which is, you know, how do we get at the sort of qualitative ways well, there are things that we can do. For example, you can ask nurses who are caring for people with dementia, for example, um, how compliant their patients are, how many anxiety meds they have to dole out, how many antipsychotic medications they have to, to give. And all of those things can be affected by music intervention, mm. believe it or not. So, you know, there are these measurable things. There, there are quality of life scales that we can use to measure. But ultimately, I still think that, you know, if you're going to ask a donor for money, you're going to need to tell the personal story. That's why the documentary Alive Inside mm -hmm. is so powerful. If you're going to ask the insurance company to pay for it, then you need to have a particular protocol and you need to, you know, follow all the same ways in which in which we can show that this is going to be effective. But that's if you have to pay a music therapist. Listening to music on an iPod or, or another kind of way of, of intervening is not expensive. <laughs> so it doesn't require, you know, billing the insurance companies. But certainly these kinds of more targeted therapies do kind of require that kind of data. And music therapists are getting much, much better at collecting it. From June 12th to June 18th, 2022, explore the intersection between arts and health through a series of events across L.A. County. For more information and a full schedule, please visit laopera.org slash wellness. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Opera.